0: Please take your copy of God's Word and turn to James chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 20 through 26 this morning. I grew up as a teenager in a small New England town in Connecticut called Westport, Connecticut. It's about 45 minutes of a commute to New York City. And apart from it being a quaint New England town, Westport was known for its celebrities. About three blocks from where I lived, an actor by the name of Paul Newman lived with his wife, Joanne Woodward. Paul Newman had a friend by the name of Robert Redford who lived in the town next to ours and they would hang out together And the two men were heartthrobs back in the 1970s. There were always sightings of these men in our little town. And they would have to wear disguises to get around anywhere. One time my sister saw Paul Newman on the sidewalk and she started following him and stalking him. And to get away from her and others who wanted his autograph, he ducked into a bar. Robert Redford was noticed in a hotel lobby and a woman ran up to him and said, are you the real Robert Redford? And Robert Redford said something simple but profoundly insightful, only when I'm alone. That's often true, isn't it? That we are one person alone and kind of another person with other people. Well, James has been dealing with The topic of faith. And how do we know our faith is real? That it's not just something we say, but we really live it out. Well, that's what true biblical faith does. It lives out faith through works. And so we have been in a verse-by-verse study of the book of James called Living Faith in the Midst of Affliction. And James has been giving us diagnostic tools as to how to determine if our faith is real. Now last week we looked at verses 14 through 19 when James began this section on true faith versus false faith. And Tim preached out of this section and pointed out that authentic faith is faith that results in good works. But a faith without works is a dead faith. And the difference between the two is that fake faith is useless. It's useless before man, and it's useless before God. So in our text today, James is continuing with this theme to press home the difference between fake faith and real faith. And so he gives us three examples of true faith which are vindicated or is vindicated by works so please follow along as i read our passage verses 20 through 26 of james chapter 2 this is the word of the lord do you want to be shown you foolish person that faith apart from works is useless was not abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son isaac on the altar justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. That ends the reading of God's word. Well, this text and the text that Tim preached from last week are two that have caused Christians throughout history great consternation. Why? Because it seems to contradict what Paul is saying in his writings about justification by faith alone. But I think James gets a bad rap here, because I don't believe what he is saying is contradicting Paul. It's not a contradiction at all. What Paul is saying is the same thing that James is saying, and vice versa— James is just using the word justified in a different way, in a different sense. James is using it in a sense that it means demonstrating, or vindicating, or validating, or certifying, or proving. Jesus uses this word this way in Matthew chapter 11, 19. He says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. That doesn't mean Wisdom is declared righteous by its deeds. No, it means wisdom is proven by its deeds or fruits. Paul uses the word justification in a different way. It's a courtroom term. It means to declare righteous, whereas James uses it in a way to mean vindicate or demonstrate. Now the other thing we need to realize, too, is that James's audience is different than Paul's audience. Paul is speaking typically to a mix of Gentile and Jewish Christians, but often appealing to the Gentile mind, whereas James is writing predominantly to a Jewish audience. These were men and women who had a lot of knowledge of the scriptures, but some of them had just an intellectual assent and not true faith. James and Paul teach the same thing about the relationship between faith and works. Last week we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. Let me read that again. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So here he tells them that they're saved by faith alone, and it's not their own doing. But then he follows this by saying, as believers, we were created for good works, and therefore we ought to walk in them because God has prepared in advance that we should do so. So James and Paul are teaching the same thing. Good works are not the basis of our salvation, of our righteousness before God, but they are the necessary result of our belief in God. True religion, in other words, works. It hears the word of God and obeys the word of God. Well, now James begins this section in verse 20 by saying, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? James doesn't show a lot of tact here at this point, does he? He calls the people that he's writing to, you foolish person. Now, this word foolish means empty or shallow or intellectually deficient. But James here, I think, is addressing an imaginary opponent who has no comprehension of spiritual truth he's saying you are empty spiritually if you do not understand that real faith begets results or works real faith is validated real faith is vindicated by good works so he's writing to those who may be tempted to believe that to consider that uh that faith without deeds uh, is still true faith. And he's saying, no, it's useless. And so he gives us some evidence of this, some examples of how true faith always leads to good works. And the first example he gives is the example of the patriarch, Abraham. Now, James appeals to this example to uh, the Jews because everybody knows who. Abraham is. He's the father of the faith. He's the father of the Jewish people. And so he's saying, let's go back and look at the life of Abraham and see the results of his faith and how his works prove that he had true faith. Now, in Genesis 15, 6, Abraham had just come off of a great military victory where he had rescued Lot and defeated Four kings. And the battle had taken a lot out of him. He was tired and he drifted off into sleep. But at the same time, he was troubled in his soul because he did not have an heir. He did not have a son. And so God spoke to him in a vision. And he told him, Do not be afraid. I am your shield. And then God promised that he would have a son, that he would provide a son for him. And he took him outside and he said look at the stars of the sky and see if you can count them and then he says your offspring will be as numerous as the stars and then comes this great statement in Genesis 15:6 and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness so this belief in God's promise of how he would provide was counted to him as righteousness. He was declared righteous apart from works. This is 14 years before he was circumcised. This is hundreds of years before the law came. And Paul quotes this passage twice in arguing that the only way we can be justified before God is through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now James knew this theology in the Old Testament He quotes this passage in verse 23. And James also knows what Paul has been teaching and his emphasis on justification by faith alone. So, why does he say in verse 21 and then in verse 24, was not Abraham our father justified by works? Or you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone? Well, again, using this word justified in a different way. He's saying Abraham's faith was proven. Abraham's faith was validated. Abraham's faith was verified, certified, proven to be true by his works. Let's talk about Abraham a little bit. He had to wait an additional 14 years after God made this promise to him to finally have a child. Isaac was born by Sarah. And Abraham was 100 years old, and Sarah was 90. And then when Isaac was a boy, in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Can you imagine what he must have felt like? The sickening horror that came over his soul? This was contrary to common sense, contrary to... God's promises, contrary to his natural affections, his lifelong dreams, but he obeyed God. The next morning, at the glow of dawn, without a word to Sarah, he saddles up his donkey. And he quietly called his two servants and his son, and he collected the wood for the sacrifice. And he began this terrible journey. Now how? he do this? Well, we're given a clue in Genesis 22, verse 4 and 5, because after he arrives at the site, he tells his servants, you wait here. My son and I are going to go and worship, and we're going to return to you. So he believed that he was going to return with his son. And the writer of Hebrews reveals to us why he believed this. In Hebrews 11, 19. it says Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. So he believed that somehow God was going to preserve the life of his son. You know what happened. He, He bound his son. He laid him on the altar. He was about to thrust the knife into Isaac when an angel called out his name and stayed his hand. And instead... God provides a substitute sacrifice, a ram in a thicket or in a bush, and he sacrifices that animal instead of Isaac. Well, James's point here is that his deed, this work of sacrificing or or going about by faith uh, to sacrifice Isaac, showed or demonstrated that his faith was real. Abraham's faith was an active faith along with his works. It was completed by his works. Now this incident with Isaac wasn't an isolated situation. It wasn't the only act of faith on Abraham's part. In fact, the imperfect tense is used here when this word is used, was active. And it tells us that his faith uh, uh, continually resulted in works throughout his life, before and after this event. And so it was shown to be genuine. It was validated. It was proven. It was matured by these successive tests that he underwent of obedience to the Lord. And so James quotes Genesis 15, 6 in verse 23. He knows that faith alone is what was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And so we must understand that James is using this word justified in a different way than Paul was using it. So so what? What is the application that we can take away from the validation of Abraham's faith by his works? Well, Abraham was declared righteous by God because of his faith. And he was declared a friend of God. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that mankind is not righteous. The Bible says that we are not God's friends. Yes, we were created to be righteous. We were created to be God's friends. But because Adam sinned, the whole human race, was plunged into darkness. We inherit a sinful nature from our first father, Adam. And we are naturally, therefore, unrighteous and we are enemies of God, not friends of God. That's what the Bible says, that God is holy and he demands 100% righteousness from us at all times from our thoughts and our attitudes to our words and our deeds and we fall short of those requirements and therefore we cannot have fellowship with God and furthermore God is a just God he must judge all our shortcomings all of our violations against his commandments commission sins of commission and sins of omission he cannot ignore any sin He must judge every sin by punishing it in hell. And therefore, we acquire this great sin debt before God that we cannot repay, we cannot atone for, apart from Christ. The wages of sin is death. And yet, God in his love and mercy and compassion and in his wisdom provided the way, the only way for us to be reconciled to God. The only way for us to be righteous before God and to be forgiven of all of our debt and that is that he sent his son to become our substitute. To come to this world becoming a man with a human nature and yet without sin in order to provide for us perfect human righteousness and in order for our sins to be forgiven, he had to be punished for those sins in our place. All our sins were imputed to Christ on the cross, those that he came to die for, and they were punished. God's wrath was poured down upon him. He drank the cup of wrath that we deserved on the cross through his suffering and death. And on the third day, he rose from the dead, proving that his transaction with God, proving that all that he did was acceptable to God for our salvation. So all who turn from trusting in their self-righteousness, trusting in their works, and all those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ alone for their salvation, they are declared righteous before God. They are declared forgiven of all of their sins. And so. My first application question is, have you trusted in Christ's work alone for your salvation? That is the most important question. And then secondly, how do you know you have true faith in Jesus Christ? Has it been validated? The question is, is there validation of true biblical saving faith in you by a God word obedience? You see, if, if we analyze Abraham's obedience, it was primarily god word. He was responding to God's command to sacrifice Isaac. And so, he obeyed God. Now, James has told us what this god word kind of obedience looks like in the Christian life, how it is to be lived out. He's told us so far, that believers are to consider a joy when we encounter various trials. So we are to, in faith, be joyful and trust God for his plans for us. He also tells us how we are to deal with the trial of either being wealthy or being impoverished. And how we are to view trials. We're to, we're to have gratitude to God for all the good gifts that He gives us. We are to seek God's wisdom in prayer and we are to seek God's wisdom in his word. We're not just to hear the word of God, but to do the word of God. Do you see this kind of pattern in your life? A God word kind of obedience that validates true faith in Jesus Christ. That means there are going to be times when you will have to make hard decisions that will require you to sacrifice in order to Make sure God is first in your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. This means that if we have an idol in our lives, we are to put that idol to death. God does not want anything but himself on the throne of our lives. So are there examples in your lives where you have sacrificed to make sure God is... First in your life, making sure that His priorities are being followed in your in your life, in your family life, in your career, in in what you do with your spare time. One example of this is: Do you honor the Lord's Day? Do you keep it holy? That requires a certain amount of sacrifice. The blessings far outweigh the sacrifice, but you see. God wants us to have godly priorities. He wants us to have a God-word focus in obedience to Him. Now, that means we must be willing to take risks at times in obeying God, even though it may mean hardship for us or persecution of some, some kind. Just as Abraham had to be willing to sacrifice his son, we have to be willing to sacrifice certain desires we have pleasures we have in order to follow the Lord. Do you see those kinds of Godward works as evidence of true faith in your life? Well, James is not done with examples. In verse 25, he gives us the example of the prostitute Rahab. He writes, And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? Now this is fascinating. It's shocking as well. James uses this example of Abraham, the great father of the faith, a great moral man for the most part. But now he he goes to this immoral pagan prostitute who was a Gentile woman and uses her as an example of true biblical faith. How was her faith? An example of a faith that was real and not useless. Well, let's recall the life of Rahab. She lived in Jericho. And God's people, after wandering 40 days in the wilderness, or 40 years in the wilderness, were, were commanded to go and take the promised land. And one of the chief fortresses between them and the promised land was Jericho. Jericho had been an impregnable Fortress For hundreds of years, the people who lived there were very proud and arrogant that nobody could defeat them. Well, Joshua was, was told to conquer this fortified city. And here we have Rahab, a prostitute. She had probably heard from traveling merchants of this nation that came out of Egypt and of this God who had performed all these miracles to provide and protect his people and to give them victory. She probably would have heard that they believed in one God, Jehovah. She probably heard bits and pieces of the promises that God made to his people. Perhaps she heard of God's laws and his holiness. But by the grace of God, she realized she wanted to know this God. She was, by grace, uh, given faith to believe in God realizing that she was a sinner and that God could provide her mercy and redemption. Well, Joshua sent out these spies to enter Jericho and they came to Rahab's house. And this is what Rahab said to them in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 and 11. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You see, what Rahab heard about this God, she believed. And her faith produced these legendary good works. What were these good works towards man primarily? Well, she showed hospitality to these spies. the the king of Jericho heard that they were there and demanded that Rahab turn them over. She hid these spies on the roof of her home and she assisted them in their escape. And she deceived the the king and, and the soldiers so that they wouldn't find these spies. In the great hall of faith in chapter 11 of Hebrews, it says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, Because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies, so you see, her work was primarily it was to honor God. She trusted that God was going to protect her, but they were manward works, and that she expressed hospitality to these spies. She hid them. She protected them. She identified with God's people instead of her own people, and so. James says, in the same way as Abraham's faith was validated by his work, so Rahab's faith was validated by her work of hospitality, of protecting these spies. So what application can we take away from this example of Rahab's faith? Well, first, and I didn't put it down here on the outline, but... Rahab was a great sinner. She was at the bottom of the social ladder, so to speak. And yet, no one is beyond God's grace. God's grace can save even the greatest sinner. Why? Because it's not up to our works. It's up to the work of Christ. And God did this for Rahab, and he can do it for any of us, no matter how great our sin. be redeemed we can be justified by the grace of god through faith in christ no one is too far gone or so much of a sinner that god by his grace cannot declare a sinner righteous and forgiven but the other application is this question is there validation of true biblical saving faith in you not just before god but before others Rahab's faith was exemplified by her obedience to God that had a man-word effect. In other words, it was expressed in protecting the spies, guiding the spies, showing hospitality. And isn't this what James has been teaching in this book so far? That our faith is to have a man-word effect as well? We are to follow the royal law. To love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We're to show mercy as we have been shown mercy. One of the primary ways that we validate our faith is we're to bridle our tongues. It means visiting, actively caring for the vulnerable, the, the widows, the orphans. It means not showing partiality or favoritism based on externals, of how rich or poor a person is, or or their status in society, or the color of their skin. So we need to examine ourselves. Do we see evidence of this kind of faith in our life? Do you see a pattern in your life of of, of of these kinds of works toward man? Love. You have a heart of repentance when you don't see these kinds of works in your life. Well, James isn't done. There's one final example in verse 26. The example of the physical body. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. He's drawing a simple example or analogy here. Just like our bodies are dead without our souls. You know, when we die, the Bible says... Our souls or our spirit leaves us and goes either to heaven or to hell. Our soul or our spirit is what animates, gives life to our body. And he says the same thing is true with true faith. Without works, faith is dead. Just like without the spirit of man or the soul of man, our bodies are dead. Now, what causes a person to be born again spiritually? Well, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, comes and regenerates our hearts, gives us faith and repentance, and indwells us, unites us to the Godhead. And and he enlivens our faith. He gives our faith feet. He gives us the power and the desire to obey his commands. And so, the last application question is, is there validation of true biblical saving faith in you through the Spirit's power. Just as the soul of a man enlivens his body, so the Holy Spirit enlivens our faith. And, 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 and so can you see evidence of that in your life where the Holy Spirit is giving you power and the desire to obey the Lord? You know, James would have been shocked if anyone suggested that he was arguing for salvation by works. He simply saw faith and works as inseparable. Jesus saw the same thing in Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 through 20. He says a disciple is known by his fruit, just as a tree is known by its fruit. He said in John 8, 29, the children of Abraham do the deeds of Abraham. And then that famous chapter in John 15, where he talks about how we are like branches abiding in him as the vine, he says that these branches are to bear fruit. If they don't bear fruit, what happens to them? They're cut off. You know, it's said that Napoleon, the great French general, while looking at some papers while he was on his horse, let go of his bridle, and the horse reared, and the emperor was in danger. And a corporal very quickly leaped forward and caught the bridle and brang the horse under control. And Napoleon turned to that corporal and he saluted him and said, Thank you, Captain. It was an immediate promotion. And the corporal said, Of what company, sir? Of my guards, Napoleon replied. And this young corporal immediately picked up his belongings and walked across the field toward the emperor's staff, tearing off the corporal stripes as he went. And he took his place among the officers, and the officers said, What in the world are you doing? And he replied, I'm a captain of the guard. By whose order? By the emperor's order. You see, a man of no faith would have not picked up his belongings and gone to the officer's quarters and claimed his new position but this describes really the difference between mental assent and true faith true faith takes god at his word and acts upon it and james has given proof of how true faith will be followed by action by works and so there's urgency in james's words here Because he's saying, you must see this kind of relationship between faith and works in your life. If you don't, your faith is dead. He would acknowledge that it's only by faith that you are declared righteous and forgiven of your sins. That's what saves you. But good works are always the fruit of saving faith. And so ask yourself, Does your life show what you believe, show what you profess? Luther said this, Idle faith is not justifying faith. We say that justification is effective without works, not that faith is without works. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith, and so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. And Calvin said, It is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. So it's not on the basis of works stemming from faith that a person is justified, but a faith where there is no resulting works is not true faith. Therefore, let us examine our hearts our lives to make sure that we have this kind of faith that results in godward works and manward good works according to god's commandments let's pray also that if we have this faith that god would continue to cause the fruit of good works to flow from our faith let's pray oh lord we